This is Joseph Clare, and you're listening to George Fox Talks Theology. Welcome, everybody. It's your host, Joseph Clare, George Fox Talks Theology. Very, very excited to have our special, special guest, Dr. Angel Adams Parham with us today. Really, thank you for being here. Good to see you. So good to be here. Thank you for the invitation. (laughs) Yeah, we uh, are going to take up a topic, a theology of education broadly, but thinking about some of the currents and trends in in K-12 and higher ed and the return to the classical movement and what's going on there. But really, um, you you wear many hats, in, including one big hat being an associate prof of sociology out at the University of Virginia as of this past summer, and also working kind of in a totally like parallel but connected career on the educational movement in America that we kind of loosely know as the classical education movement, but it's got lots of threads and strands and um, you have two um, daughters, you're married, you've homeschooled for many years, we'll talk about that, and uh, you founded a classical learning community in New Orleans before you guys moved to Charlottesville called Nyansa, and um, we'll just, we'll talk about all these things. So let's let's launch in and maybe begin with this thought. Um, we had a chance to speak a while ago, and we were talking about my favorite subject, as everyone knows, Augustine of Pippo, and um, my argument has always been that um, it seems like Augustine gives up on his ambitions around liberal arts education, which he begins, you know, in his 30s in his academic career um, and his conversion. He begins constructing a Christian liberal arts curriculum and then he's ordained. And he moves into the church and he kind of leaves that all behind. It looks like on the surface. But my argument is that the work of educator never leaves him. And in his greatest works, like the city of God, he's actually doing something for the church, but also for education as well. So one way to read the city of God is to read it as an argument that says this, the work of teaching and learning is not just about intellectual skills, but it's about content. It's about the story that your curriculum ultimately tells. And if your curriculum isn't telling a big story, um, about the world, its purposes, what human beings are and are for, then you're fundamentally uh, malforming your students or you're, you're, you're insufficiently educating them. Take that huge thought. So he's writing in a climactic moment. He starts the city of God after 410 AD, the sack of the city of Rome and the kind of unraveling of the Roman Empire begins. And what we know as the birth of Christendom is really happening. But for all he knows, he's working on this huge volume, um, thinking about the tasks of the educator. Where are we um, in terms of having a story to tell the students that we're educating? And are we in kind of like a parallel and significant uh, moment like Augustine found himself in the later Roman Empire? Like what's going on with the big story in education right now? I see you like to start with the softball questions. (laughs) Yeah, ones that I don't prepare people for either. Yeah, there you go. Try that. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Um, Wow. That's very interesting. Um, So I think I will will approach this first 
in terms of, of how I approach um, education in my discipline and then work up from there. Mm-hmm. All right. Because I think it could, it can really speak to this question. So um, as you said, I am in sociology. I've been in sociology since I was in college. That was my undergraduate major. Those are my master's and PhD. I've been a professor for, you know, 20 years and counting. Um, and it's all sociology, right? And sociology as a discipline emerged in the 19th century and is very forward-looking, you know, kind of looking to the future, very modern, um, and really self-consciously cut itself off from its classical roots, mm-hmm. all right? Even though the founders were classically educated, right? Yeah. And would have been reading the ancients and the medievals and so on. So for me as a sociologist, the way that I was educated, um, I didn't get a classical education. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been getting it, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. but I, I, I did not get one as a young person or in college or in graduate school. And so as I've come to classical education and educating my own daughters, um, it has been an incredible gift because what it has given me is this story, mm. um, the story that I, I wish I had had from the beginning, mm. right? Um, so for instance, what is it that brought me into sociology? What brought me to sociology was wanting to have a good world, wanting to be part mm. of a good society, looking mm. around and seeing this is not how things should be. Mm -hmm. So for instance, when I was a young girl, one of the things I did, I think I was in about sixth or seventh grade Mm. and I created a society called Arlandia, right? (laughs) So, you know, I looked out at the world and I said, things are really not the way they should be. (laughs) We're going to fix this in Arlandia. And so I had a whole scheme for how children should be raised and what the schooling system should be like. And um, I, my mother is a legal secretary. I had her drop some mock citizenship papers and try to recruit citizens to come to Arlandia. You know, it was a whole thing. I, I got one recruit at school. She signed up. Um, my mother, when I presented her with Arlandia, found it too authoritarian for her liking. Um, you know, basically I was, you know, <laughs> this philosopher queen who was going to kind of tell everyone what they needed to do to have a good society. And my mom said very wisely, I would say, oh, that's probably not for me. So, you know, I had these inclinations. Mm. I knew nothing about Plato's Republic, you know, what if I had been introduced to Plato's Republic? Right. Um, I think I would have been very interested, was not introduced to Plato's Republic in college or graduate school, yeah. right? But as I have over these past many years now, and mm. doing this reading and really getting steeped in it, um, what I am seeing is this larger story that we have been asking these questions about mm what is the good life and what is a good society for millennia? Mm. And so even in thinking about how I approach something as specific as sociology, those are the larger questions that are undergirding it. And that is often what is pulling, drawing students to it, but we don't necessarily present it as that kind of story 
going back for millennia and looking at how so many very wise people have mm-hmm. tried to come up with different answers to it. Right. right. And I think that there's something really at stake there that mm-hmm. we do not create everything new, you know, that we do have um, wisdom of ages that we can draw on. Mm-hmm. Um, in abolition of man, CS Lewis, you know, kind of talks about this, about um, what he calls the Tao and how there are all of these, um, there's so much wisdom literature in Mm -hmm. Western culture and Eastern culture. And it's there for us to draw on where there is a remarkable degree of agreement on many basic things, like you should treat others well, you shouldn't steal. You know, there's something there outside of ourselves that points us to what is good. Mm-hmm. And so when we are engaging in education, I think we need to be telling that larger story of there's something in us as human beings that hungers mm-hmm. for something good and true and beautiful. Mm-hmm. And that as we are studying, whatever we're studying, you know, I happen to be in sociology, but you know, it could be biology. It could be almost anything that is the larger story. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to live a good life? Otherwise, what are we doing? (laughs) Why are we here? And I think also what I have pushed back against for many years, even before really coming to this fuller realization of education rooted in the classics, was I never wanted to teach in a way where I was just saying, okay, here's the material, now learn it. you know, even in something as, as simple as my introductory sociology courses, where it's very common to have a textbook and you just go from one thing to another. Okay, now mm-hmm. we're going to talk about the idea of race for one week. Now we're going to talk about gender for one week. Now we're going to talk about schools for one week. And I just couldn't, I just couldn't see why anyone was well served by that. Mm-hmm. And so instead, I chose three books, mm-hmm. monographs that would allow us to dig into those issues. But Mm -hmm. there's a larger story in Mm -hmm. those books. There's a larger question that we're trying to get at and answer. And so you feel like you have a stake as a learner Mm -hmm. in trying to understand this. Um, Whereas when material is presented in bits and pieces and chopped up and regurgitated on quizzes, why? What, what, what are we doing? You know, this, this is not really fulfilling this deep sense of, you know, what is the larger reality here? What, what is at stake in terms of our humanity and the kind of people we are and the kind of society we want to live in? Yep. Oh, it's beautiful. I think one of the things the studying the classics has done for me too, and like you, I kind of I'm, I'm re-educating myself now, later, you know, having had a fairly okay, you know, public school education along the way, but gotten introduced to classical texts later, realize there's this a powerful recognition of your own self, of your common humanity when you read old books, whether it's 100 years or 3,000 books, that human beings have been asking the same fundamental questions for a long time. Like what's the purpose of a human life? What's a good society? Is there life after death? What's friendship? What is authentic love? You know, all these things. How do you square that experience of 
recognition of our common humanity. Even, you know, you and I, as different as we are, can recognize ourselves in the words of Socrates and, and Plato's dialogues. In an age when we want to emphasize the difference and the particularity and the otherness and the peculiarity of the identity of the individual, which I'm guessing is a huge part of your graduate training in sociology, as it was for me in religious studies, are these things totally at odds with each other, common humanity and identity and particularity, or how have you been able to negotiate those in your own life and work as an educator? Mm. Yes, that, that is the big question these days, in the sense that, you know, perhaps we should focus more on, you know, studying people who are like us. Um, and what I would say is that I think it's a both and kind of thing, that I think having this grounding in these great questions and in great texts that have enduring power I think is incredibly important for everyone. Um, At the same time, um, I do think that it's very helpful to um, to be able to converse across traditions and to see where, um, where they're in conversation with each other and to have an ability to cross cultures and to cross understandings. Because even though there is much that binds us together, as human beings, there are also many differences. And I think part of the problem of of where we are now is that, um, you know, there there has clearly been a privileging of of Western and European um, content, ways of knowing, and so on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so quite naturally, those who have not been at that center are saying, well, where are our stories and where are our voices? And I think that's fine. I, I don't have any problem with that whatsoever. But to me, it's a difference between saying, let's have a larger conversation versus let's, you know, just kind of all go to our own houses and have yeah. our own separate conversations. And we're, we're never going to, you know, kind of come together. Now that said, I do think it's very important to say that, you know, when, um, some of the kind of more ethnic studies began to emerge in the 60s and 70s, like African-American studies. I think that was incredibly important and necessary Mm -hmm. because now we have recovered so many voices that were not considered to be important, that were pushed to the side. That scholarship is incredibly necessary and important. And so in that sense, sometimes we do need to maybe go home um, and kind of understand our own traditions better, and then come back out to Mm -hmm. be in conversation with others. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's a thing where it's one or the other. My concern is that we seem to be, the push seems to be, you only stay home with your people, (laughs) you know, and, um, and, and that's fine. Um, I think that we do need the sustenance and support and the traditions from which we come and we need to study them and take them seriously. Um, But we also need to be in this larger conversation. Now, on the other hand, I would say that mainstream conversation that's been happening um, within the United States and the larger Western world that has been mainly European and European eyes also needs to take our voices seriously. That is to say, it's not a matter of, just, you know, people of color will become kind of 
bicultural, but you know, those who have been in the mainstream will just stay the way they are and not hear anyone else. I think there has to be a kind of give and take where, um, so if we're doing um, classical education, I don't think that should mean that we don't read people who are non-white or non-European. Um, I think there are ways to bring that in to the larger conversation. Those voices also need to be part of classical and canonical teaching. Sure. Well, it, it's kind of like if the argument for common humanity is legit, then you shouldn't be afraid about expanding the canon or enlarging the conversation because people will fundamentally be asking these universal questions about the nature of goodness and truth and beauty and justice versus a kind of mincing identity politics, which is ultimately about retracting or retreating into your pocket of identity and tribalism, or I don't know what the right word is, but clearly like, um, the mixture of toxic politics and digital social mediaization of our lives show that um, we're hungry for identification with others and we're losing the ability to identify with things across the lines of difference that we take in common. And part of that could be the decay of our educational system, which was about, you know, could have been about reading these um, common texts um, and, and not being uh, draconian or authoritarian um, about it. So how would you. Can I just expand yeah, on, please, on this please. line of discussion? So. What I would say is part of the problem is precisely that in our mainstream K-12 education, and to some extent in college, but especially K-12, the way that the, the kind of standard way that we're educated, at least in the United States, which is the, the case that I know best, mm-hmm. um, at least when I was going to school and when I talk to students today, it doesn't seem to have changed very much, that there really isn't you don't really get very much of Native American history and experience, African-American history experience, Asian-American history and experience. This is not an issue of let's check our diversity boxes. Mm. It's an issue for me of who are we as Americans and what is the actual Mm. history of the country, right? Um, And having grown up as a young Black girl and Black woman, I can certainly say that when you just about never see yourself in what you're studying, it does have an impact, you know? Um, And so there, there is a legitimate issue and cry there. Mm -hmm. Um, For instance, you know, when we are looking at American history, you know, taking a classical school, for instance, Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America is certainly considered, you know, a classical um, text, not classical in terms of antiquity, but a canonical text central to the tradition. Um, So if you're going to be reading that, why not also read Du Bois um, and also read some Native American authors? Because um, Tocqueville has a very large middle section where he talks about race relations between whites, Native Americans, and Blacks. Mm. And so there you're very squarely staying in the canonical 
tradition and you're bringing in other voices Mm -hmm. that are also great texts that speak to this question of who are we as Americans? And I think that would be so much more interesting than the horrible textbooks that I was raised on that I would not inflict on anyone. Sure. Yeah. And I think that's the, you know, for whatever reason, human beings are always, or at least we are in this moment drawn toward these kind of polarizing extremes of a sort of nostalgic triumphalist sort of like whitewashing of the past versus a just total deconstructive takedown, you know, that makes you doubt the very values and validity of your institutions. And it just seems like that kind of black and white Manichaean thinking rarely applies to reality into the human experience where we're, and this is why, again, I love Augustine. I think we partly share this love as he's got a really nuanced anthropology where human beings are these totally mixed bags of motives of good and bad and heroic and heinous. And that that is life, you know, being creatures who are made good in the image of God, but broken in these fundamental ways. And how do you do history and education and create textbooks that get at that complexity? You know, mm. what do you, so we've been talking about classic texts and whenever you hear that, you think of the Odyssey or the Republic or something. And of course, then there's others from the ancient and medieval, early modern, modern world. We've been wrestling with how do you get that out of just like a dead white guy, you know, European um, Western Civ approach. I think there's some really cool stuff happening on an expanding generous canon of um, great works, great texts, and your own work is in that direction. But when we talk about classic texts, we might know what we mean, but when we say classical education, what are we talking about? Yes, they they are they overlap, but they are somewhat they're somewhat distinct. So, classical education would have been at least in the Western tradition would have been just education um, until about the late nineteenth, early twentieth century. Mm-hmm. It wasn't called classical education, um, but it was a kind of education where you did have some central text um, that everyone was reading. You often did, if for those who were bound for college, you had ancient languages like Greek and Latin that you needed to learn. Um, and then there also was still this sense, even in college education, well into the 19th century, of you know a kind of moral core to mm-hmm. education and understanding that the enterprise that we're engaged in is one that is shaping not only minds, it's not only providing information, but it's providing formation of the soul. Mm. And so I think that aspect of a certain um, substantive content in terms of largely agreed upon texts that are important, foundational skills in terms of um, languages, um, but you can also think of the, um, the, the natural sciences as well. And then also this moral formation that all of those were considered to be part of the enterprise of education. And so there was this sense that there, um, this is what all students need. Yeah. As we get into the 20th century and the progressive era, there's a a very different sense of what education is for. 
that is kind of braided together with the um, consolidation of industrial society, um, that we are looking forward, we're not looking back. We've got a bold new society, a new economy. We've got, you know, kind of objective science. And so we should apply the objective science to every realm, you know, um, including the way that we educate. And so this idea that we want to specialize, we want to be practical, you know, not everyone is going to go to college, you know, let's just educate for where children need to be plugged into this larger system. Mm -hmm. It's more efficient, Mm -hmm. certainly. Um, And I think there was also this sense of we're creating something new. So we're not necessarily trying to build on the foundations of this older tradition and renew that tradition, (laughs) but we're creating something fundamentally new. Mm. So when we talk about classical education today, it's often spoken of as the classical renewal Mm -hmm. because the idea is we didn't create it. We're just renewing a tradition that has always been there. I I like to think about it this way because I do historical work. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think of it as, you know, we've had about a hundred years of a progressive experiment. When you line that up against the millennia of this other deeper approach to education, it seems to me that we have the weight of history on our side. Now that's not to say that everything was hunky-dory and wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) about education before. So Mm -hmm. I don't want to be misunderstood. But what I would say is that there are so many jewels there, Mm -hmm. so many tried and true approaches. Mm -hmm. Let's take memorization. Mm -hmm. I've had some interesting, (laughs) some interesting run-ins with um, progressive educators on, on the idea of memorization. I remember at one point I was, um, thinking when I was still homeschooling my daughters, wondering, you know, how long can I do this work full time homeschool? And I said, let me just, let me take a tour of this private school that everybody likes. So went to the school. Interesting that they were using um, several approaches that I was using at home. So that was nice to see. And then when we got to talking about math, I asked, oh, so what's your approach to memorization? You know, math facts and so on. And I got this kind of apologetic, you know, um, response of, oh, well, you know, sometimes we do that, but we really try to shy away from that. Um, (laughs) And I thought, why would you try to shy away from memorizing math facts? What on earth? I mean, why are we apologetic here? Mm. Um, This is very strange to me. I very much drilled my daughters on math facts. And I watched and stood by painfully watching um, other children in my after-school program count on their fingers and try to figure things out. Mm. How is that serving anyone well? Memorization has a very important role Mm. in education, but it's been given this bad name somehow. Mm -hmm. I had another run-in with a progressive educator. Um, I was talking about phonics and phonics-based reading and... um, I got a look as if I had three eyes mm-hmm. on my face and it was mingled with a look of 
of disgust and horror. Mm. Why would you do that? Um, you know, that's <clears throat> not, that's not how we do things. You know, that, that, why would you inflict that on children? And I thought, wow, um, my children don't seem to be suffering. And all of these homeschoolers I know who are using phonics seem to be just fine, <laughs> but they, they seem to have, rather than it being this moderate position of, well, of course you don't only do memorization, right? Sure. Um, you don't only focus on phonics. You also give them great literature and read it aloud. You know, it's, it's a, a moderation. All of this is braided together, Yeah. but you can't just leap into these advanced skills without having, you know, some really tried and true drills, memorization, and so on. Yeah. So those would be examples where I would say, We've got, you know, kind of hundreds of years of worth of these things are good. Certainly there, I, I, I support the corporal punishment going by the way and not being there anymore. So progress is needed, yeah. um, but we don't have to throw everything out. Totally. No, I, my own kids have been a classical Christian school and it's modeled after that trivium quadrivium model so the grammar stage is a certain age range where there's a lot of memorization a lot of facts and then there's logic where you start to wrestle with how you put the facts together and assemble them for an argument the rhetoric mostly high school where you're learning how to get the facts make the argument but do it in a persuasive beautiful way and then the quadrivium the quantitative arts you know the four on top of that um with astronomy and and, um, and geometry and arithmetic and music. And I think that um, what I've learned in that, in Dorothy Sayers' famous essay, The Lost Tools of Learning, sort of recap these right. just in this moment you're talking about in the 1930s, uh, 40s. And I think that um, there's something there that humbles you as a human being to think, well, gee, we've made all sorts of progress on like, materialistic scientific knowledge but we haven't like gotten <laughs> that much past what they already knew about how children <laughs> educated you know 2000 years ago or more um so yeah it's humbling but it's also like inspiring and encouraging and those um those seven liberal arts you know the trivium and the quadrivium were the foundations out of which all the disciplinary knowledge is in the human and natural and social sciences that you and I work in came out of. And so it's just easy to have a short historical memory and to be overly um, sort of confident in your own historical moment, you know, chronological snobbery as, as C.S. Lewis calls it. So how did you mention this about not having a classical education yourself and then the need in sociology to think differently about your own work, but how did you kind of back your way into classical education and what have been your like experiments with it thus far? Yeah. So this is interesting. I, I've just taken a very strange and winding road mm -hmm. <laughs> to get to where I am. And I just thank God for it. Uh, so I'd say really the way I came into it was through my daughters, mm -hmm. um, through my daughters and through another homeschooler um, who introduced me to classical education. So we were, we were in New Orleans for 18 years until we just moved to Virginia last fall. And New Orleans struggles in terms of public education. And so when it came time for my oldest daughter 
um, to be thinking about kindergarten, I wondered, hmm, so is this, do, do we want to put her in the public schools? Um, we were not in an area, we were not earning what I would have wanted to earn to put them in private school. Mm-hmm. And so we were in this kind of in-between position. So I said, you know what? Um, both girls were in a daycare um, when the youngest was an infant and the oldest one until she was four. And I decided, let me pull her out for pre-K four and have her and the baby at home. I ordered sunlight, which was wonderful school in a box. Um, Mm. and they have wonderful resources for pre-K, but I would say actually that was now that I think about it, that wasn't my first thought about homeschool because I bought, um, two-year-old and three-year-old curricula. There are (laughs) two and three-year-old curricula, very, very basic, but it just gave me guidelines. In fact, they're back here on the shelf right now Mm. for two-year-old and three-year-old. So even when the oldest was in daycare, Mm. I was homeschooling her before she went. Um, So we would always start out by reading her toddler Bible, and then we'd do a little lesson. It was all over in about 20 minutes, and then Mm. she went to school. And her, by the time she was three years old in the three-year-old room, her teacher came to me, her face was all bright and shiny. She said, did you know your daughter knows all her letters? (laughs) And I said, why, yes, I did. (laughs) We've spent year two and year three doing those letters and letter sounds and numbers and all sorts of things, 20 minutes a day, hardly anything. Mm. Um, So I had been thinking about it, you know, even when they were very, very young. And then I decided to just pull her out at four and kind of just do the whole thing. Mm. By the time she was, let's see, we did a couple years like that. And the, the beginning of her third year of homeschool. So I think this would have been first grade um, is when I was introduced to classical education. Mm. Mm-hmm. I went, I sat in, um, I saw the memorization, the chants, and, you know, the kind of material and the approach. And I said, Oh, this looks great. So that is how I got into classical Mm. education. Mm -hmm. And then once I got into it and started reading, you know, children's classics. um, So children's versions of the Odyssey, for instance, which I read with my daughters, Mm. um, the see Charles and Mary lamb have a wonderful little book that mm. is um, Shakespeare in prose. Mm. Um, so it, it kind of makes uh, the, the Shakespeare plays into short stories almost, just told mm. in prose. So I read that to them when they were in elementary school. I got, you know, a young people's version of Dante. And then as they got older, we read the real thing. And so um, I was actually getting my education. The first version of the Odyssey I read was Jillian Cross's illustrated Odyssey for children. Yeah. <laughs> that was my first encounter. Yeah. Um, so I'm doing that with them. And then I'm trying to remember when I started to bring this into my scholarly work. And I think the beginnings of that. Um, Go back to maybe 2011, 2012, Hmm. where I was trying to understand, you know, how how do we come together around these issues of racial inequality? 
you know, kind of all the issues that are the rage today, even more so than they were then. Yeah. Um, as I said, I've been thoroughly trained in sociology. I know, you know, racial inequalities and histories like the back of my hand. Um, but I could, I didn't feel that sociology alone was giving me the tools for thinking about. So how do we as people come together mm. to try to reconcile, to try to work through these issues? And my sense, my very strong sense, was that we had to tap into the moral imagination. We had to, it wasn't enough to give statistics and, you know, graphs and histories. I mean, you need that, but you also needed to get past that into the soul and into this deeper sense of what it means to be human and what kind of society we want to live in. Mm. And so I started then, I, I was rereading um, Robert Bella and his co-author's book, Habits of the Heart, um, which is a wonderful, wonderful book, squarely sociological. But in the appendix, he has got um, something that's entitled Social Science as Public Philosophy. Mm. And so I read that, or I reread it, because I had read it before, but mm. I was now in the middle of classically educating my daughters and asking these larger questions about, you know, what is a good society and how do we work together? And it just hit me like a bomb, what he was talking about, because what he was saying is, you know, there's this older tradition of asking these questions that is historical and philosophical. Mm. And that social science or social scientific thinking was not always atomized the way it is now. Mm. And he talked about how in the, you know, up through the 19th century, the college president was often giving a capstone course in moral philosophy for all of the students. Mm. Um, and he said, you know, we really, we need a social scientist to be thinking historically and philosophically about good society, the good life. And that just led me off on reading the, some of the few sociologists who were thinking along those lines. And I started to find more and more of them and then started to find seminars where I could read classic text with others. Um, and that was very, very helpful. Mm -hmm. One of the most helpful seminars I took through the Albertus Magnus Institute, which is relatively new, mm -hmm. they had a seminar on the history of happiness, mm. which was brilliant. So um, I am trying to remember if it's the professor is theology or philosophy or a combination of the two, but basically he took us from Plato through Freud, looking at how different thinkers conceptualize the idea of happiness. And I had not realized that there was a whole conversation on happiness that was going on. And when we think of that in terms of human flourishing, we very quickly get to these questions about what does it mean to be human? What is a good life? What is a good society? Mm -hmm. So for me as a sociologist, though all of those things that had been roiling around in my mind and heart, I saw them then in this organized way of reading from antiquity to the 20th century on the history of happiness. And it just made everything crystal clear. It just, everything snapped into focus. 
Mm. I said, why has this been kept from me all of these years? Why wasn't I trained in sociology, as you said at the beginning, to think in terms of a big story? Because the transformations in our understanding of what happiness is, what it means to be a good life, Mm. is absolutely central to, you know, so much that drives us today socially and politically. Mm. And so to me, that's what we need to be studying. So it's it's really been this kind of slow path um, over many, many years of educating my daughters and then kind of re-educating myself um, in terms of a different kind of sociology that sits on that classical foundation. It's fantastic. It's wonderful to hear. Thank you. It leads to this book that you're finishing up or have finished with Anika Prather, um, Black Intellectual Tradition, Reading Freedom in Classical Literature. How does that, how does that work kind of manifest the confluence of all these threads we've been talking about? So there's classical education, classic texts, there's your own sociological work on race and migration. There's the need to make a more generous sort of canon and broaden and enlarge the conversation. There's the work of educating your own children and our children as a society. How does the Black intellectual tradition kind of work out these different uh, tensions and, and streams? What's your argument in there? Yeah, so, so that really comes from my background as a Black woman, as a sociologist, as a Christian you know, as someone who is interested, truly interested in understanding what is true, good, and beautiful, and how do we educate our children that way. So as I've been in classical education, you know, doing it at home, what I liked about it was that I could integrate many different kinds of voices. Mm -hmm. And we read very generously in African-American history and culture, right? Mm -hmm. Together with the classics that are not focusing on African or African-American history or culture. So that was something I did at home. It was something I did in the community. And I was seeing that there were more and more classical educators in the circles I was in who were wondering about how do we do classical education in a way that does invite these different voices. And so it's just been, you know, really a series of invitations to have those conversations with others Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And to share some of the way I've thought about it, some of the way that I've done it, um, that has been the foundations leading to this book. And Anika, you know, was doing many of the same things and um, asking many of the same questions and experimenting. And so I think our purpose is twofold. One is to show, especially to the African-American community, that this kind of classical education is part of our heritage as well. That is that we're not kind of just stuck on to the side, you know, like awkward late um, (laughs) and people who were invited late to the party. Um, But this was actually very central to the way um, most black intellectuals were educated up until very recently. And that there was a real struggle in the 19th century post-emancipation for the soul of African-American education, where the classic debate is Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois on this question with Booker T. Washington arguing for a very industrial and agricultural form of training and W.E.B. Du Bois arguing, yes, we need that, but we also really need liberal education for black people. 
right? Yeah. And Anna Julia Cooper also enters into that discussion on the side of liberal education. Mm. So we want to show this is actually something that we have been part of for a long time. And in fact, many powerful forces tried to keep this liberal and classical education from us, mm. saying that we weren't good enough, we weren't smart enough. And so how ironic then to now turn around in the 21st century and say, that's not for us. So that is, you know, that's part of it. But then the other part of the, the reason for writing the book is that so many classical educators are asking this question. um, Maybe they're in predominantly white schools. Well, why should we read these black intellectuals? And so my response is, If we're interested in pursuing and cultivating truth, goodness, and beauty, these are voices we really need to have. Um, If we think in terms of Mortimer Adler's great ideas, for instance, Mm -hmm. and, you know, freedom is one of those great ideas. Who better to really help us understand freedom than Black writers who Mm -hmm. have been in the belly of the beast of slavery Mm -hmm. and who have very eloquently reflected Mm -hmm. on and written about the issue of what does it truly mean to be free, right? So if you are wanting to cultivate that in your students, you need these voices as part of the conversation And so the way that I read them in in our book um, is I present um, a series of Black writers and show how they are in conversation with this larger classical tradition, but then also what they are bringing from their African-American experience and how they're braiding all of that together. Mm -hmm. And it's important to have that, um, whatever your background is, if you're trying to better understand the fundamental issues and struggles of the human experience. That's beautiful. I know I've, I've often thought we don't emphasize freedom enough in education or in classical education, certainly, but liberal arts education. I mean, if, if a liberal arts education is the education fitting for a free person, a liber, a citizen, you know, someone who's free and entitled to living in a free self-governing society. Now, granted, who counts as a citizen has slowly been expanding in the West and important in good ways. But um, back to the idea of education needing narratives. If you think about the narratives that have most shaped Um, Western civilization and their for education, they've been narratives of freedom. So you think about how important the Exodus narrative has been for political freedom of God's people in Egypt, out of slavery, you know, for King and the civil rights movement. Um, As you think about the work of learning intellectual freedom, Plato's cave, you know, coming out of darkness into the light, being intellectually freed from Captivity, um, obviously spiritual freedom over death and darkness, the resurrection, um, moral freedom over the body's appetites and desires, Paul's letters or Seneca or anything. It's all it's always about freedom. I think the modern fixation has been on economic freedom in a lot of ways. So we moved from aristocracy um, to this idea of like everyone having um, I think since the Reformation and industrialization and now information, it's become more and more like egalitarian and like uh, individual in terms of using your talents to earn a livelihood and 
that's like a really beautiful, empowering thing that still needs to happen in lots of parts of the developing world, obviously. But in some ways, modern education has gotten so fixated on economic freedom and efficiency since the progressive era that it's lost this more complete picture of the kinds of freedom that we're really hungering for, including intellectual freedom, including mm-hmm. political freedom. And you have to stitch the story of freedom back together um, to provide a coherent picture of the goal of authentic education. I can't thank you enough for diving into and embodying and pointing us away um, to not just like put the black intellectual tradition as an appendage, but to see it from within the tradition and see the voices. Obviously some of us try to throw Douglas or Baldwin or King into our classes, but to actually get fully immersed in the tradition and see how there's a, the largeness of the conversation is actually happening within these texts, not just as an add on. I don't know if this is too touchy, have a question, but I wonder, like, how have you been impacted as a Black woman working in this middle space? Uh, the classical education movement is notoriously seen as kind of like a white or privileged sort of like sub-alternate universe, you know, breaking away from K-12. Like in my world right now in public education, it's like there is a huge civil war going on between conservatives and progressives over like what's taught in the education, the public school education Mm -hmm. board is being ripped apart. And, and therefore to like take your kids out of that into classical ed is seen as the ultimate kind of like, yeah, elitist retreat, you know, largely white sort of move. Do you catch flack for the work that you do? I don't know if you speak to that. I know it's a hard question. So I would say, that I have not, but here's my caveat on that. I am not really active on social media. And I think that that is a large part of the reason why I am not embroiled in arguments and, you know, pushback and so on. I kind of do my work, you know, I have my daughters, I do my educational work. When I speak with others about um, the the work that I do in the community with my nonprofit, which focuses on classical education for um, diverse children, children from diverse backgrounds, I have, you know, pretty much only gotten welcome, you know, from people of color and Mm -hmm. um, also from white Americans who are very interested in supporting the work. So, I have not gotten, you know, why are you having these kids read Homer? Why are you doing that? But I also think it's because of the particular way we do it. Mm-hmm. So for instance, um, in the community program in Yansa Classical Community, when we read Homer, um, the Odyssey, mm-hmm. we also look at the, the artwork of Romare Bearden, who was an mm-hmm. African-American artist who has this beautiful series called The Black Odyssey. And it's a series of paintings and um, collage art that retells the story of the Odyssey through the lenses of African and African-American history and culture. It's absolutely beautiful. And I encourage you and your listeners, if you haven't looked at it, go and do a Google search of Romare Bearden mm-hmm. and the Black Odyssey. And I think your mind will be blown, you know, at the beauty of the images um, he's got, you know, say Circe, the Cyclops, Home to Ithaca is one really kind of striking panel. 
So when we study these things, we put them into conversation with each other. So it's not as if I am telling my black and brown students, you know, this is the only way I'm saying, look how your people have innovated on these themes. Mm. So we read Mm -hmm. the classic and then we also engage with that classic through the lenses of different kinds of cultures and histories. Mm. So that might also be one of the reasons that I don't really get a lot of pushback. Um, I have, um, you know, spoken with scholars in um, classics, you know, in, in academia and classics. And you may have followed some of the, the politics in classics recently. There, there's, it's, it's been roiling quite a bit over issues of, of race and inequality and whiteness and so on. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a lot of blood spilled in, mm-hmm. in that. <laughs> yes. um, I have only gotten support. Mm. But again, I think it's because of the particular way we go about doing things is that I very self-consciously blend together the traditions and put them in conversation. So it's not a kind of, you know, immersing the children in whiteness only. Um, It's let's look at these beautiful classics. They happen to have been written, you know, by Greek writers, but it's wonderful. Let's study it. And then also let's see how some from your own community have interacted with that and they've innovated on it, you know, kind of the image of, of jazz, right. You've got different musical traditions coming together in a beautiful way to create something new. Tradition and innovation. No, that's so beautiful. I, I was thinking about this after we talked about Augustine a few weeks ago. Um, for your podcast that one of the ironies with the classics um, as like a institutional sociological phenomenon in the past two centuries is that it really came out of like a secularizing trend in the research university mm-hmm. um, to say, we need some way to preserve this kind of field of literature and language and philology in an era where theology is not just like the front and center, like bedrock of what we're up to, because Christians have had, always had an, a unique understanding of how the classics even fit in with the scriptures and with the life of faith. And it's not always been just like this uh, harmonious, easy dance, right? Like Augustine Tertullian was like, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? You know, right. and Augustine's like, should we even be reading some of this, you know, yeah. uh, Epicurean nonsense? It's That's the irony with the canon as if it's some univocal voice mm-hmm. saying the same thing, you know, from the ancient to the present. It's not. In fact, Christians were very critical of the classics. This was the inheritance of Greece and Rome, the people who were persecuting them, spilling right. their blood, you know, for the a couple of centuries. And so, I even feel like the Christian model of intellectual charity and generosity to see what was good in the classics Mm -hmm. uh, as they began to take over more cultural precedents and build their own institutions of education. Scripture was always the center of the dialogue, but they said, well, what is there in Plato that was truth seeking and good? Or what is what is there in Homer or Virgil, you know, that we can reconcile these were the books of the people that had been hammering them and trying to annihilate them for a couple of centuries. So I think that um, there's an interesting moment now that we have approaching the classics in, in this kind of 
secular, post-secular moment where you've seen classics departments kind of get torn down from within is to say, yeah, the classics um, and what they say is it's a fraught conversation about these questions of the human good and the human purpose. And you have to have a theological or at least a philosophical perspective to even wrestle with these texts. And a lot of ways that classics departments had become, I think, aristocratic kind of bastions of privileges, you know, and the privilege in the 19th, early 20th century, you can see why uh, the alienation has occurred. And I think Christians need to, offer a different perspective. And I hope some of that's happening in the classical Christian movement. Okay. We're going to come in for the, the lightning round here at the end and, and make it personal. So of all these texts we've been talking about um, other than scripture, what is a classic text that has most like formed and shaped you as a human being? And how did it do that? Oh, good grief. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. That is really hard to answer, especially since I did not grow up reading the classics, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and it's been more recently that I have come to them. So I think I can answer in terms of, of, of what has been very significant to me as I've immersed myself in the classics. Mm-hmm. I think that would probably be the, the more honest answer. Um, of all to choose from. I think I would say one thread that I see going through them. Oh, it's so hard to choose. Oh goodness. I was about to say one thing and then I thought about another. (laughs) Um, Okay. I would say that I love, I love both Plato and Aristotle quite a lot. You know, some of what I said with the Republic, you know, I think that the whole impetus of what Plato is engaged in speaks to my heart as a sociologist, (laughs) you know, like wanting to wrestle with who are we and what makes us good and how do we do this? So his is, is a more kind of maybe, maybe literary poetic exploration of those things that I enjoy very much Mm -hmm. and that I can come back to as a well to drink from. But Aristotle, um, especially the um, Nicomachean ethics and the politics Mm. are, they kind of appeal to the more social sciency part Mm -hmm. of myself of, Mm -hmm. okay, how are we going to break this all down and actually do this thing? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I kind of see the two of them as, as two sides of the same coin. Mm. Plato delights me. And I just love to get lost in that world and think these thought experiments and, you know, these prominent myths, like it just delights the mind. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Aristotle helps me to think more kind of systematically and logically about what a good society could look like and what it would mean to live a good life. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. No, I resonate with your description of the two. And um, yeah, makes me think of that little part of um, the School of Athens painting, you know, with Plato mm, pointing right, out there. Right. So I do think there's That's something right. there between, yeah, the social sciences, the methodology of Aristotle. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. 
Dr. Angel Adams Parham, thank you so, so much. If you do end up founding Arlandia in the end, <laughs> sign me up. I'll be a citizen <laughs> for sure. So thank you so All much. Right. Excellent. <laughs> thank you so much for the invitation. This has been a production of George Fox Digital. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe to the George Fox Talks podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you stream things on your phone or computer. Check us out on the web at georgefox.edu slash talks, where we have videos, publications, and more. And we're also on YouTube at youtube.com slash georgefoxtalks, 